Well, good morning, City Light. What a great way to kick off a Lord's Day gathering. Uh, my name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. And would you join me in John 17, verses 1 through 5? We'll be in John 17, 1 through 5. And it's my privilege to preach a message I'm calling God's Glory and Our Joy from John 17, 1 through 5. You can stay seated as I read this. Just follow along with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Well, I'm a newlywed, and so you're just going to have to put up with some marriage analogies for at least a few months. Let me enjoy it. June 24th, 2017 was my wedding day, and it will go down in history as one of the greatest days of my life. Now, on that day, I experienced unprecedented joy, but also have to confess I had a lot of anxiety that morning when I woke up. Now, now God had made it clear to me that this beautiful lady was a good gift to me, his grace to me. And finally, after a sweet engagement season and all the planning and, and anticipation, it was culminating in marriage. But yet, on that day, I was having a bit of an M&M moment. And what I mean is, my palms were sweaty, knees weak, arms were heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already, Olive Garden spaghetti. That's what I was feeling that day. Now, I didn't really throw up, but I did have anxiety. But let me be clear that the anxiety had nothing to do with Brittany, and it had everything to do with me. Uh, I was allowing some painful past experiences to shake me up and to color that good day. Uh, my story is similar to Pastor Chris's. So I've never met my biological father. Uh, he left my mom while she was pregnant with me and never came back. And then when I was in my early 20s, I was almost engaged to a gal that I thought I was head over heels in love with. And then she left too and she never came back. So that morning, I was struggling with whether or not somebody would stay committed to me until the very end. But I was also feeling the weight of what it was going to, to be to be a, a married man. It meant that I would have to sacrifice, continually sacrifice, all of my personal rights in order to love this woman well. And so questions were swirling through my mind, like, would I ever get to go deer hunting again? I didn't know. Could I endure watching Cupcake Wars every day of my life until Jesus comes back? We've watched a lot of that lately. But more seriously, could I break this chain of abandonment in, in my life and just be committed to a woman? And so all I knew to do was to take a cue from Psalm 61.2. And there the psalmist writes, When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And so in that moment, I prayed, and the Lord steadied my soul, and He empowered me to, to make it to the altar to accomplish that portion of His will for, for my life. 
And so what was it that waited on me there? Well, it was sheer joy. Um, I can't describe, I can't articulate the, the emotion, the joy I felt when those sanctuary doors swung open and I saw my radiant bride coming down the aisle. You know, when people ask me, you know, Cameron, how was your wedding day? The, the thought that immediately surfaces is, I felt the pleasure of God that day. I received a good gift from God, I was obedient to Him, and, and entering into that union glorified Him because the marriage covenant is a picture of the way that Jesus loves His church. So church, in John 17, we see something remarkable here. Lay before us is the fact that it was also prayer that propelled Jesus to complete the work that God had for Him to do. And namely, His work was the establishment of a new covenant through his blood. Now in our study of John, we, we arrive at this revered high priestly prayer. And so the final moments with the disciples, they're winding down, and the cross is now looming large. And so it's really important to note Christ's response in this uneasy moment. And his response is to cry out to the Father in prayer. But I submit to you that the mood of the prayer is not one of despondency. Rather, his prayer is filled with faith and hope and joy because he's praying as one who will overcome the world, as John 16, 33 tells us. Now, the scholarly consensus is this prayer is broken down into three parts. So I'm preaching the part where Jesus prays for himself. And then Chris will preach the part where Jesus prays for the disciples. And then Gavin will finish by preaching about how Jesus prays for the church in the world. Now, I believe the intent of this prayer is twofold. One, he's connecting with his heavenly Father through this prayer. But he also prays out loud for our instruction. So what do we need to get from this prayer? Well, when you study the three movements a theme emerges. And here's the theme, that the Father's purposes be set forward. And so Christ is concerned that God's will will be accomplished in and through him, and it would also be accomplished in and through his followers. So church, out of the gate, we need to ask some questions. Is God's will being accomplished through us? Are we living purposeful lives, or are we simply coasting through life? What is the driving force of your life? Are you giving yourself over to the glory of God, and are you using your life to further His kingdom, a kingdom that will not crumble? Or are we guilty of vainglory? Are we working our fingers to the bone, building some little personal kingdom, a kingdom that will eventually crumble? Well, it's my hope that the following three observations from this prayer will help us all to live lives that really count. So here's number one. Jesus prays for the Father to glorify the Son. That's the first petition we see in this portion of the prayer. Notice verse one again. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And so his dialogue with the disciples is ending. 
And now he lifts his eyes to heaven to pray. And it's striking to me that if you think about it, when we pray, the majority of the time we bow our heads and close our eyes, but Jesus lifts his head and opens his eyes. And I think this serves as a quick reminder that there are multiple acceptable ways to pray. In fact, I think it's healthy when we take on this different types of postures in our prayer life. And I would especially recommend the head up, eyes open posture when you're driving and praying at the same time. That's a method that works well in the car. And then Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. You know, repeatedly throughout John, we've heard what? It's not come, it's not come, but finally, God's appointed hour is here. So this hour refers to the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So we could sum up the hour as being the entire culmination of the earthly ministry of Jesus. But here's what we can't miss. Though Christ's actions are always in perfect accord with the decrees of God, and though he knew it was God's will for him to be glorified, that he would soon be glorified, this doesn't keep Jesus from praying for his glorification. Notice again, he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So here's the point. In scripture, the emphasis is that the great sovereignty of God His divine plans, they should fuel our prayer life and not discourage our prayer life. But but there are a lot of people that struggle with that balance. Some people believe that, well, since God's absolutely sovereign and has a plan, then prayer must be pointless. And other people don't believe that God is sovereign and they think they can pray and and talk God into stuff. But, But here's the biblical and balanced way to think about prayers. More than this, but prayer is a means through which God accomplishes His will in the world. So think about that. A sovereign God uses people like us and our prayers to bring about His will on this planet. So you can rest in the fact that God uh, does have a redemptive plan. But we should be rejoicing that we're a part of that. That He uses His prayers, to, our prayers, to carry out His will in the world. Now... Let's take just a moment to consider what it means for Christ to be glorified. What's that word glorify mean? Well, it can mean many things, and it can mean to praise, to honor. But in this context, the the primary meaning is to clothe in splendor. And now we will talk more about this in point three, but the desire of Christ is that God would restore to him the splendor that he enjoyed with the Godhead before he stepped down into the earth to save us. And so Jesus is passionate for God's glory. And his prayer expresses a willingness to obey the Father even to the point of death. For his will, the will for Christ could not be completed. He could not ascend until he first faced the agony of the cross. So we need to ask, what about us? Do we pray that God will be glorified in our lives no matter the cost. Now, we won't pray this way until we understand that God's glory and our our joy aren't at odds with one another. I mean, how many people know that God has wired us to be worshiping creatures? 
Uh, we all worship someone or something, but we, cre- we were created to have Christ central in our affections. As we worship Him, our joy increases. And so in this world, we will never experience true joy until we stop drinking from the empty cisterns of this world and turn to Jesus and have our spiritual thirst quenched in the living water that is Christ. And the way it works is, the more satisfied we are in Him, the more glory He receives. And I say to you, it's the satisfaction of Christ that carries us through the seasons of suffering that we'll have to face. I mean, nobody enjoys suffering. Uh, the, the top prayer on my prayer list is not, God, please allow me to suffer today. But it's, my, it's been my experience that, that oftentimes we can glorify God in even greater ways through our suffering than when it's smooth sailing for us. And here's the reason why. When we respond well to suffering, when we maintain our faith in Jesus despite our, our trials... We practically demonstrate to the world that Jesus and the treasure we have in him is far more valuable than any pain or difficulty that we experience in this life. In our suffering, when we stay faithful, we have the opportunity to show the world who the true treasure is. Now, I've seen this principle play out in the life of a high school friend of mine named Yancey. Uh, Yancey was one of the popular kids in school. He was gifted in academics, a great athlete. He had a magnetic personality. But his life spiraled out of control when his dad died of cancer, when he was a junior in high school. And so Yancey was struggling with how to process the pain. And he turned himself over to hard drugs and alcohol. And eventually, after a season doing that, he lost his college scholarship. And on a day when he should have been in class, he was out riding his motorcycle, his dirt bike, in a reckless way, and he careened into this big above-ground-top satellite dish, and the end result was he's paralyzed permanently from the waist down. But thanks to God, the tragedy turned into triumph. Just a couple of weeks after the accident, Yancey was led to the Lord by a mutual friend. He trusted his life to Jesus. And I'll never forget what he shared during a small group Bible study just a couple of months removed from his conversion. He announced to the room, he said, Y'all may not believe me when I say this, but I thank God every day that he put me in this wheelchair. Because if he had not put me in this chair, if I would not had this accident... I would have not slowed down long enough to embrace Christ as Savior. And so City Lodge, just think about what this communicates to a watching world about Jesus. Here's a formerly athletic man who's articulating that he would rather stay in the chair chair with Jesus than be back on his two feet without the Lord. Jesus brought him a joy that he had not experienced to that point. And so again, I ask us this morning, is the glory of God central to our lives? Do we pray that he will be glorified in us and through us, no matter the cost? And so Jesus prays that he will be glorified, so the Father could be glorified. And now we move to a specific way 
that Jesus glorifies the Father. So number two, Jesus glorifies the Father by giving us eternal life. As he grants us eternal salvation, the Father is glorified through that act. Uh, Notice again verses 2 and 3. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so the Father has given the Son authority over the entire human race. And so men like Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un, they might think that they have some measure, a measure of authority, but it's Christ alone who is truly preeminent. Thankfully, Jesus is not a disgruntled dictator. He's a loving and benevolent God. He, he created mankind in the image of God, but God's image in man was marred when we fell into sin. And then out of obedience to the Heavenly Father and out of His great love for us, think about how crazy this is. The Creator steps into the cosmos He created so that we might have eternal life, so that He could give eternal life to all the Father had given Him. And He did this so the image of God that was marred in man could be recreated through His redemptive work. And so John 17, 2 is making it crystal clear that salvation is something we receive, something we get. It's a gift, and it's not something that we achieve. But because we are prideful people by nature, a lot of our default position is to try to perform to please God, to to be seen as a good person. But if you're trying to get to God through morality, through moralism, the question I have to ask is, how good do you have to be to get to God? Just think about that. Is it 85%? Are you confident in your righteousness? Is it 70% good? Is that a passing grade? Can we slide into heaven with a 70? Well, unfortunately, the Bible says it takes a 100 to get in. God requires perfect righteousness before we can be let into his presence. And since we are sinners by nature and choice, we can never get there in our own power. So the good news of the gospel then is that Christ performed on our behalf. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. And then he died the death that we all deserve to die. So when we trust in him, he removes our sins and we get the gift of his righteousness. So this morning we should pause and ask, have you acknowledged the fact that you're a sinner along with the rest of humanity? And have you humbled yourself before the Lord? And have you received his great gift of eternal life? And then the second half of verse 2 should deal a death blow to any spiritual, spiritual pride that remains. To whom does Jesus say he gives eternal life to? Well, to all whom the Father had given him. We come face to face, once again in the Gospel of John, with the doctrine of election. Now, election is a difficult doctrine. It makes some people squirm. But I say it's a glorious doctrine because it's a biblical doctrine, and it should humble us. The reality is that Jesus has all authority 
in order that he might save some people out of every tribe and tongue and nation. Now, from our viewpoint, we don't know who the elect are, so we treat everybody as if they are elect. We don't worry about that. We preach the gospel. The gospel freely goes out to everybody. But I believe the testimony of Scripture is those who end up trusting in Christ, they were foreordained to do so before the foundation of the world. Now, that's all the time we can devote to this today. If you have any questions, follow-up questions, email me at gavin at citylotomaha.org, and I'll be happy to solve all of your theological conundrums this week. But, but as it relates to the point I'm trying to make, that salvation is a gift from God, we absolutely then cannot earn anything that was already given to us before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 3, we get a clear definition of what eternal life is. Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so the essence of eternal life isn't just ongoing existence. I don't know about you, but that would get boring after a while. But rather, eternal life is a relationship with a person. God chose to reveal himself through his son. So therefore, the only way we can get to God is through his revelation. And so Jesus debunks here our popular cultural myths espoused by our spiritual gurus like Ellen and Oprah that we simply take the path of our choosing. As long as we believe in it with sincerity, we'll all get to God through the path of our choosing. But Jesus says, no... Salvation is found exclusively in me. Belief in Jesus is the only way we can get to God. And church, we have to understand that this belief isn't just head knowledge. Jesus says that eternal life is knowing God. It's knowing Jesus Christ. So that word that translates as knowing, it conveys intimacy. Now, theological knowledge about God is good, intellectual knowledge has its place, but it's not enough. Uh, Theological reflection should always result in our heart affections being stirred up toward the Lord. And so saving faith has to move beyond the theoretical. It entails trust. It entails real fellowship. It entails faith. It's a living and breathing relationship with Jesus Christ. If you think about it, we know the difference. We know what it's like to just know somebody and then really, truly know somebody. Uh, One of my best friends, he's a huge Seinfeld fan. He's got every episode memorized, and maybe you do as well. And when he was in law school in Vermont, he had an off day, and he was hiking up a mountain along a river, and he looks down in the river valley And he swears he sees Cosmo Kramer standing down there. And he thought he might have been having a hallucination. So he shakes it off and goes on. But curiosity gets the best of him. And he hikes the two miles back and he gets down there. And lo and behold, it's Kramer uh, at that river smoking a cigarette, hanging out in Vermont by himself. And so I have to tell you that that made my friend's life. He approached him and got a picture with him. And Kramer was annoyed at first, but he finally gave into it. But here's what we have to understand. Though my friend knows a lot of facts about Kramer, 
And though he was in close proximity to him, he doesn't really know no Kramer. Not the way that Kramer's family and friends know him. Not the way that Mizra's Kramer knows Kramer. My friend's knowledge remains at a surface level. So, City Light, here's my concern. I'm afraid that there's a lot of people in Omaha that are trying to relate to Jesus the way my friend relates to Kramer. You know a lot about Jesus. In fact, this is an easy place to amass a lot of head knowledge about the Lord. Uh, This is, in many ways, the center of cultural Christianity, the Midwest, the South. Maybe you, you know the Bible. Maybe you know some theology. And maybe even you go to church fairly frequently, so you're in proximity to Jesus and his people. Let's be real honest this morning. Do we really know Jesus in a relational way? Has he made a difference in our lives? And that's the heart check. How can we determine if we indeed have a vital relationship with God when we look inside? If we have freely received eternal life, it means that our hearts will be transformed. See, eternal life is not just about quantity of life. As I said, eternal life is really about quality of life. When we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus, we enter into the eternal life now. And yes, pain and suffering, discomfort, that will be a part of our experience in this sin-cursed world. But as Chris has been telling us so well on Sundays, we get real joy in this existence because of our relationship with Jesus. It's been my experience that religious duty, sheer duty, it leaves us dry and empty. But a living relationship with Jesus fills our hearts with delight. So I encourage you, take a moment and do a spiritual heart check. Gauge your pulse to see if you've got some real vital relationship with God kicking in your heart. And so Jesus is concerned that the Father's glorifying. And a way that Jesus glorifies the Father is by giving us eternal life. We get the benefit, God gets the glory. Well, here's another way, the final way we see in the text that Jesus glorifies the Father. Here's number three. Jesus glorified the Father by finishing his redemptive work. And we see this in verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And so the ultimate way that Jesus glorified the Father is that he's completing the work that that God sent him to accomplish. So yeah, the cross, the resurrection, they're still to come. But from Christ's standpoint, it's as good as done. He had obeyed the Father perfectly at every point to this point. So now he won't stop obeying him now. And then verse 5 says... And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So remember, when Jesus came from heaven to earth, he had to forfeit some of his glory to condescend to us. And so now Jesus is anxious to get that glory back. So in a sense, he wants the incarnation to be reversed. He wants to be de-incarnated. He's anxious to get back to the Heavenly Father. And he wants to get back there so he can enjoy the glory and and the the joy that he experienced among the members of the Holy Trinity, the Godhead, before God sent him to the earth to save us. And it was the anticipation 
of this glory and joy that propelled Jesus forward to complete the the final costly component of his work. Uh, Hebrews 12.2 says, "...who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God." And so Jesus had a relationship with the Father, but he also had responsibility. And I say to you that all of us who have a relationship, who have eternal life with God through Jesus, we also have responsibility. Just as Jesus used his life to fulfill the Father's purposes, God calls believers to use our lives to also fulfill his purposes. If you just look around, people all around us are searching for purpose. Humanity longs to live significant lives. But aren't we grateful that the author of life has clearly revealed to us how our lives can count? And summarized simply, the Bible says we were created to do two things. One is to know God. Secondly, it's to make Him known. If you've wondered, well, there you have it. Those are the reasons for which you were created. And those are also the ways by which you glorify God with your life. kind of works this way. After we trust in Jesus, that initial trust moment, uh, we surrender ourselves to his sanctifying work. And the Holy Spirit pursues us, and he propels us to keep seeking the Lord through prayer and through Bible study and through worship. And as we do so, we progressively grow into Christ-likeness. That's the process of sanctification. As we grow and grow more and more in the Lord, as we delight more and more in His presence, we praise Him more, and so God gets more glory from our lives through that process. You know, 1 Timothy 4.8 says, "...while bodily training is of some value..." Training in godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Just think about it, that we have this so backwards in our culture, don't we? We spend so much time on the outer man or the outer woman while neglecting the inner person. We spend thousands of dollars and hours of energy trying to look good on the outside. But I don't know about you, but I've met a lot of really attractive people who are literally ugly as sin on the inside. Don't look at them if they're here, but you know what I'm talking about. And then we, we don't want to end up like the Pharisees. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27, they were like whitewashed tombs, which looked beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they were full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. So we were created to know God, to grow in our knowledge of Him, to become increasingly like Him. And the second reason we were created is to make Him known. That's the second big purpose of our lives. And so God calls us to be Great Commission Christians. The moment you're saved, you're commissioned then to live on mission. He desires to use you as an instrument to usher other people into the eternal life that you're currently enjoying. And as people cross over from death to life, they join with us in celebrating that Christ is the Savior, and so God's glory expands. On Wednesday night, I was um, chatting with Paul Schleicher, 
getting some tips for this sermon. By the way, he's like a Christian Yoda. You should seek out his counsel sometime. He's got great biblical insight. And we reflected on the fact that Jesus accomplished the Father's will in a relatively short period of time. Think about that. He finished his purpose, and he was only 32 or 33 years old. And so here's what stands out about that. Fulfilling your purpose in life has nothing to do with living a long life. It's not about living through all the years, but rather to fulfill your purpose. It's so imperative that you use whatever years have been allotted to you and you steward those years for the glory of God. You know, in this life, we tend to define tragedy as a life cut short. That's tragic. But a greater tragedy is a really long life that never lives their life for a purpose, a wasted life. That's the far greater tragedy. You know, Christian history is replete with examples of people that live short lives, martyrs like Stephen and other famous missionaries. But yet, they left lasting legacies because they leveraged their lives in eternally significant ways. And my mind goes to one of my heroes, a missionary named Jim Elliott. In 1955, he and four friends, they felt the call of God to go evangelize a tribe called the Aka Indians in Ecuador. And so they were initially encouraged by their first few contacts. They met some tribesmen, and even they flew one guy around in their airplane. But then tragically... On January 8, 1956, as their plane again landed, they were confronted by a group of ten Aka warriors. And those warriors speared those five men to death on a riverbank in the jungle. And Jim Elliott was only 28 years old when he was killed. But what makes the story so compelling and so noteworthy is that after a period of prayer and healing... His wife Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, and some of the other wives and family members, they go back to try to take the gospel again to the very men, the very tribe that had slaughtered their husbands. And as a result of their courageous efforts, nearly the entire tribe was converted to Jesus. And one of the murderers even becomes a pastor. And at some point, he baptizes a little boy by the name of Steve Saint, the, the son of a slain man named Nate Saint. So what happened is he baptized the son of one of the very men he killed. You know, when Jim was younger, he recorded this simple prayer in his journal. He said, I seek not a long life, but a full life like you, Lord Jesus. And it's obvious that God answered that prayer for him. And so City Light, may our lives not be measured by long lives, by the number of years we live, but rather may our lives be measured by how we steward the years we're given for the kingdom of God. So let me close with this question. Are you wasting away? Are you wasting your years? Or are you using them to glorify Jesus? Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, just help us. Uh, Help us to live lives that count. 
And they'll only count when we come into a relationship with your son. And then he commissions us. And he allows us to live purpose-filled lives. So God, may a person not leave this building until they're in relationship with you. Until they desire to, to live out your glorious purposes. It's in your name we pray. Amen.